0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit.
1: Hello. Welcome to Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. Today I want to welcome the esteemed Dr. Catherine Donnelly, Professor of Nutrition and Food Sciences at the University of Vermont, who has written a very amazing and upsetting book called Ending the War on Artisan Cheese. Welcome. Thank you so much, Diane. I'm very excited about this interview. And I am, too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, the subtitle of your book is The Inside Story of Government Overreach and the Struggle to Save Traditional Raw Milk Cheesemakers. So, first, Dr. Donnelly, can you tell us where you work and what you do, which pretty much puts you at the center of the scientific cheese world?
2: Yes. So I have been a professor of nutrition and food science at the University of Vermont for 36 years. And um, some of my duties there involve teaching a graduate level food safety and public policy class, Mm -hmm. as well as my research that has been focused on um, working with Vermont's artisan cheese community and artisan cheesemakers nationally, really,
3: mm-hmm. to
2: um, help put in place safety protocols to produce safe cheese products. Mm-hmm. And so um, I initially wrote this book thinking that most individuals. and and many of our students that were educating in food systems at the University of Vermont don't understand the degree to which regulations shape their food choices. Mm -hmm. And so I thought I would use artisan cheese as an example of some of the um, regulatory constraints that confront artisan cheesemakers but I think what I found in researching the book surprised even me
3: in
1: terms mm-hmm.
2: of the degree to which these regulations were really punishing the artisan cheese community.
1: Well, it certainly surprised me. I thought I sort of believed when people said that, that the FDA comes to our conferences and, and that that implied we were working together or trying to. And the book is so intense. It builds and builds the case with lots of science and many initials. Some some are a little confusing, but it it's quite a predicament. But is it currently still going on? So what's interesting
2: is um, when the FDA has been challenged on certain regulations, and mm-hmm. I write a chapter about very stringent E. coli standards. Um, You know, when we present the scientific evidence that these standards are inconsistent with what is done in Europe and um, are really creating a trade barrier because it's going to prevent raw milk cheeses from not only entering this country, but um, domestic U.S. artisan cheesemakers were having trouble complying with these standards. Mm -hmm. and the standards had no correlation to food safety Mm -hmm. that the FDA's own data showed as well as data that we produced. And so when challenged by um, congressional representatives, including some from Vermont, the FDA backed down on E. coli issues. Mm -hmm. The same with wooden boards when Mm -hmm. the FDA announced that they were now going to start enforcing a ban on the use of wooden boards in cheese aging, again, the science was not supportive of FDA's position. And again, when challenged by a large number of members of Congress, I think ultimately 56 signed a letter asking the FDA to um, back off from this issue. Mm -hmm. And they did end up backing off. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if these regulations were... So strongly based in science as to form policy, and then the FDA is backing away. It really makes you wonder why they didn't do a more thorough investigation of their own policies in the first place before right. announcing these um, policies to the to the artisan cheese community. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Now you have a very nice quote in early in the book uh, saying. The artisan production contributes to a biodiverse microflora in cheese, which in turn imparts unique sensory attributes. Can you explain that a little? Sure, so why cheesemakers
2: use artisan practices? Um, this has been done for hundreds of years in Europe,
3: mm-hmm. and now
2: we've seen this wonderful trend in the United States over the last 30 years. The reason, so we think of, of cheese as a fermented food, mm-hmm. and you produce cheese from microorganisms that are either inherently present in the raw milk that is used to make cheese or in the environment where that cheese ages during affinage when it's cared for as it matures. Mm -hmm. And so when we look at the surface of many cheeses, you see a very um, complex rind that is formed of very ordered microbial communities. Mm-hmm. And these microbes originate from the forages where the feed for the cows or sheep or goats is produced, in the aging environments, in the wooden um, tools that are used in cheesemaking, mm-hmm. and really contribute to unique flavors and characteristics mm-hmm. of these cheeses that reflects their either regional place of production Or what's even more fascinating is the various cheese families, cheeses that belong to certain families like bloomy rind.
3: Mm -hmm. If
2: you're producing a bloomy rind cheese in France versus the United States, you will see the same ordered members of the rind um, consistent with both France and the United States, even though the the subspecies might be a little different mm-hmm. you 're basically using that cheese making technology to select for these microbes ah. that are just endemic in cheese making environments and mm-hmm. I think that information is so very exciting. Mm-hmm. Rachel Dutton mm-hmm. and her colleagues um, have pioneered that that very complex molecular biology work, mm-hmm. and to me, it just opens up a whole new area of inquiry and
1: ability and interest. of cheese
2: makers. yeah, and interest to further yeah. diversify their cheeses mm-hmm. and produce some great additional cheese varieties. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I also loved the um, a very thoughtful obituary of Lucy Appleby from 2008 And she argued that cheese was a living thing in which the natural bacteria enhanced the flavor and texture of the final product. To pasteurize it was to kill its character. Yes. So um, she was a very nice advocate for cheeses from, from England.
2: No doubt about it, and A, I think that is one of the most poignant obituaries I've ever read. It's just so beautifully crafted, but Mm -hmm. really shows a woman who devoted her whole life
3: to Mm -hmm.
2: raw milk cheese making. And what's interesting is very um, elite purveyors in England, you know, when they started tasting this cheese, I think of Randolph Hogston at Mm Mill Yard Dairy, He'd never tasted a cheese like that before, Mm -hmm. and it really formed the cornerstone of his whole business that has really um, done more to promote artisan cheese making in the U.K. and um, to introduce to the U.K. these cheeses from the past that consumers can now enjoy, Mm -hmm. and they're wonderful products.
1: Yes, yes. Now, you quickly inform the reader, that the FDA's cheese regulation is, quote, at best questionable, at worst incorrect. So how did you get into this argument? So
2: what's interesting is throughout my scientific career, I think I've been really fortunate to be able to work with um, scientists at both the United States Department of Agriculture, as well as the Food and Drug Administration. Mm -hmm. My um, interest in cheese began with my interest in, in the bacterial pathogen listeria. And when I moved to Vermont in 1983, there was a major outbreak of listeriosis that had occurred in Boston, Massachusetts, linked to pasteurized milk. And nobody knew anything about listeria as a foodborne pathogen at that time. And so my lab um, started work on developing detection methods for detecting listeria in foods, including milk, and then worked closely with the FDA over a number of years to refute the theory that um, the CDC was purporting that listeria could possibly survive pasteurization. And so we did some wonderful work with the FDA to show that pasteurization was very effective in killing listeria. And Mm -hmm. in fact, it was post-process recontamination and not survival during pasteurization. That explained the appearance of listeria. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: so I've always had a wonderful relationship with scientists at the FDA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've published papers together and shared knowledge. We participate in conferences together. And so when the artisan cheese regulations that were coming out of the agency, when I took a look at those, I said, "This is not based on the credible science that I'm used to dealing with in mm-hmm. the agency,"
3: mm-hmm. and
2: so things had changed at the FDA.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, and I felt, in terms of of challenging those regulations, it's very difficult if you're an artisan cheesemaker to challenge regulatory authorities,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, and I'm a, a tenured full professor. And so my challenge was based on here's the scientific evidence that I'm looking at the evidence that I see is inconsistent with the policies that you're writing. Mhm.
1: Mhm. Hmm. So that helped you be the person who should get into the fight.
2: Yeah, I think so. Um when I th- I think what would be a travesty for our country would be the day that um, regulatory um, authorities abandon science and Mm decision-making. I I think Mm -hmm. at the heart of Mm. the work of the FDA, they make important decisions about drugs and medical devices and our foods. And so to have credibility, the information coming out of the agency has to be scientifically sound. And when it's not, I think Scientists have an obligation to point out that this data or this regulation that you're promulgating, the scientific evidence does not support where you're going on this. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I felt very comfortable mm-hmm. raising issues from my perspective, someone on the ground who had done a lot of work mm-hmm. with Vermont's Artisan cheesemakers. Looking at the microbiological quality of raw milk used in in cheesemaking,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, very high microbiological quality, and so these attempts to ban the use of raw milk in cheesemaking again were inconsistent with what the microbiological profile of that raw milk was used in cheesemaking,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and um, so I felt very comfortable um, challenging mm-hmm. the FDA mm-hmm. on where they were going with these regulations.
1: Mm-hmm. Let me read another quote from the book. The raw milk-cheese debate is really a debate over where and how our food is produced and by whom, the values that we individually place on methods of food production, and the conflicting roles of tradition, heritage, and quality versus advertising, marketing, politics, and profits, which ultimately influence our food choices. I loved that, that quote. Oh, thanks Diane.
2: <laughs> yeah, and to me that's really what um the book is all about and I think artisan cheese offered in my mind some of the best examples of where yes. we're going wrong. Yeah. And you look at um you know food safety for instance, it it would be so easy to um overnight change our food supply Just based on, okay, we have a zero tolerance for, you know, any kind of um, contamination, whether it's something Mm -hmm. that is – I mean, I think – let me step back for a minute. First of all, with artisan cheesemakers, you're not going to have a saleable product if you're making your customers ill. Right. So food right. safety is something mm-hmm. that is completely important. Right. And what my group had done over 15 years was work really closely with artisan cheesemakers to help them put practices in place that would allow them to not only make safe foods, but also foods that um, were of really high quality mm-hmm. because artisan cheeses sell for for very high
1: prices. hmm
2: Now, if you look at the industrial model of food production in the United States...
1: It's completely um, different.
2: It's completely different, Mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. And you look at um, the corporations that are calling all the shots on how that type of food is produced. They have seats around the table when regulations are getting promulgated. They've Mm -hmm. got the ear of the FDA where does a small-scale food producer mm-hmm. get to impact how these regulations are produced? Mm-hmm. And I think we would be very wise as a country to ensure that when we're promulgating regulations, we hear from a multitude of voices, large and small and industrial mm-hmm. and artisan,
3: mm-hmm. that
2: shapes good good policy. Mm-hmm. But this blanket, um, oh, well, we're going to write these sweeping regulations that are designed to get rid of all the artisan production potentially mm-hmm. and allow a monolithic food supply mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. And when consumers speak with their voices in pocketbooks, it's very clear, especially given all the interest in artisan cheese, that's not the the industrial model of food production is not the only model that consumers are thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's discuss the evidence. The, yeah. first, the first uh, chapter is the FDA's assault on artisan cheese phase one. Can you summarize why did they lower the amount of E. coli so crazily? Yes,
2: so crazily.
1: So, very good question.
2: Um, it, and what's interesting is normally when um, regulations are going to change, the agency goes out of its way to hear from the multitude of voices that Mm -hmm. are out there, Mm -hmm. how will this impact your business, and where's the public comment. If you look at what happened in 2009 and 2010, the changes were made on very limited um, public comments Mm -hmm. that were largely from large industrial producers, the artisan cheesemaking community had no idea that these regulatory changes were being made. Uh And what's really interesting is my group um, had worked with the former Cheese of Choice Coalition back in um, the early 2000s, trying to get information from the FDA on the domestic and imported um, cheese compliance program, and um, what we found in that data, that there was some E. coli data. So we went back and reanalyzed it more recently,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and found that when the FDA is saying, well, um, these standards that we're promulgating, the really low E. coli levels, mm-hmm. um, are easy for cheesemakers to comply with. Our data had showed that between 66 and 76 percent of the cheese samples that the FDA analyzed between 2004 and 2006, before the regulations were changed, the those cheeses did not meet compliance with those new regulations.
3: Mm -hmm. I mean.
2: For 76% of samples to exceed now Mm -hmm. the E. coli standards that the FDA was about to promulgate,
1: Mm -hmm. there's
2: something wrong with that picture.
1: Now, was that artisan cheese or was that industrial cheese? It was um,
2: domestic and imported cheeses. The imported cheeses would largely be... Artisan cheeses, Mm -hmm. Parmigiano Mm Reggiano, some of the you know famous French varieties, Mm -hmm. lots of Italian Mm -hmm. cheeses, Mm -hmm. a lot of UK cheeses.
1: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that's crazy. Well, so why, when the FDA says it does things, but it doesn't do them like that? That I don't (laughs) understand. Um, How can they, like, you write about following the ICMSF guidance, International Commission on Microbiological Specification for Foods, and then they they ignored it. They completely ignored it. And again, um, what I've
2: noticed during my career is, you know, back 30 years ago, or longer than that, the FDA had an amazing microbiology group
3: mm-hmm.
2: in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm.
3: It was
2: world-renowned. The mm. science coming out of that microgroup was so great. Oh, that's and good to hear. And those were people that I, oh, yeah, but it's long gone. <laughs> <laughs> it's all been closed down. Actually closed. actually closed? Actually mm. closed. There's no more microgroup okay. in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed with the FDA over time a lot of the scientific expertise has been replaced by legal expertise. Mm. And, again, you need that scientific evidence to correctly inform decision-making.
1: Mm-hmm. And when
2: you don't have it, um, you might make some mistakes.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they have.
2: And, 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 whether it, and those mistakes might be
1: intentional. Right, right. Okay, we have to take a break. We'll be back with Dr. Donnelly from the University of Vermont soon.
0: This episode is presented by Henry's Wine and Spirit, a go-to shop for anyone interested in natural wines and boutique spirits. There's a large selection of everything from orange wines, pet gnats, and reds from around the world. Whether visiting the shop in person or online, Looking for a gift for a loved one or that everyday dependable bottle, you're sure to find lots of interesting wines at Henry's. There's free shipping on orders over $300 on the website henrys.nyc and case discounts when you visit the store located in Bushwick. Cheers.
1: So we're back with Dr. Donnelly from the University of Vermont, discussing her book, Ending the War, on artisan cheese. So now tell me about the second assault in the book, the wooden boards assault. When yes. did this and, come out?
2: So this was in 2014,
1: mm-hmm. when
2: um, some New York cow artisan cheesemakers knew that um, there the FDA was starting to take a look at enforcing regulations around the use of wood in cheese making. Mm-hmm. Some cheesemakers in upstate New York had been inspected by the FDA and had been cited by using wood in cheesemaking. And so um an extension faculty member at Cornell University, Rob Riley, um, asked for a clarification from the FDA, mm-hmm. and um, ended up sending a communique to the artisan cheesemaking community saying, "Hey, you know, I I just heard that um, the FDA is going to start enforcing a ban on the use of wood in cheesemaking, mm-hmm. and so that communique worked its way to Vermont, and several of our in Vermont artisan cheesemakers." Um, had started getting in touch with their congressional representatives, Mm -hmm. being worried that they just made multi-million dollar investments in um, wooden aging facilities, Mm -hmm. and had asked specifically Congressman Peter Welch, if he could look into what the FDA was doing. Mm -hmm. So in March of 2014, one of Congressman Welch's staff members had sent an email down to the FDA saying, our cheesemakers are concerned, could you tell us what's going on? Mm -hmm. And the communique that came back from the Office of Public Affairs at FDA was, yes, we've looked into this issue and um, the, the um, Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition is going to start enforcing a ban on the use of wood and cheese making. It's not a new regulation, but it's one that's now going to be enforced.
1: Mm-hmm. And is that so true it, that it wasn't a new regulation?
2: Well, the regulation says that materials shall be of such workmanship to be adequately cleaned. Okay. Um, Okay. That's the regulation. Mm -hmm. And so the feeling from the FDA was wood did not meet that criterion. Mm -hmm. Wooden Mm -hmm. shelves did not meet that criterion. Mm -hmm. So back in March, the um, staff member working with Congressman Welch sent a message to the artisan cheese community, and I was copied on that saying, hey, I checked in with the FDA. I've got some really bad news for you.
3: Mm
2: So at that point, um, the artisan cheesemakers, not only in Vermont but in upstate New York and elsewhere,
3: mm-hmm. started
2: taking to social media, telling mm-hmm. their consumers, "Hey, sorry to tell you guys, but you know we're we're not going to be able to age our cheeses on wood any longer."
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, you know, just wanted to let you know. And this is a really tragic development.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, the FDA started getting some negative. Information, and so they published a constituent update in June, saying the um, what you've heard from social media that we're enforcing a ban on the use of wooden cheese making is not true. We've never said this,
1: and um, <laughs> so this, you it know, we're, it, we're it only took a few this. months. It only took a few it months only, t- that time. It
2: only took a few months. <laughs> but what's really interesting is. Congressman Welch became upset because he said, "Wait a second! I've got this March communique from you saying you mm-hmm. are going to take do right. a ban on the use of wooden <laughs> boards in cheese making, and now you're telling us in June that you're not." And so he has this wonderful tweet on his Twitter feed saying, "The FDA." Right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, which (laughs) FDA should cheesemakers believe? And so, what was really interesting about the timing of that particular communique was the so, Congressman Welch had joined forces with Paul Ryan from Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. The FDA's budget was hitting the floor of the House. The very week after this whole kerfuffle happened, oh, and so perfect. Congressman Welch and um, Congressman Ryan, who happened to be the Speaker of the House at that time,
1: and had, is from Wisconsin, so is clearly going to be on the, the right a very, side,
2: <laughs> at a very important cheese state.
1: Right. And
2: so um, Welch and Ryan got fifty-six members, uh, fifty-six of their colleagues, to sign this amendment to the FDA's budget saying no amount of disappropriation will be used to enforce a ban on the use of wooden cheese aging. Oh, and
3: excellent. that's how that
2: issue got settled. <laughs> so when when there's talk that there's no longer bipartisanship, I point to this <laughs> as an example of how Parties from both sides well, can work together in yes. the interest of citizens of the United States and in the interest of cheese,
1: <laughs> and in the interest of cheese. Yes, what
2: could be more important? <laughs> well,
1: but Paul Ryan took a turn for the worse before he left. So who knows? Who knows if he would have still stood up for cheese? Um, now, does it help to have Whole Foods and Whole Foods and Wegmans involved in that fight? I think it absolutely does. Mm -hmm. Again,
2: um, when you look at the collateral damage Mm -hmm. of, you know, such a broad sweeping regulatory proposal, Wegmans, Whole Foods, a big part of their bottom line is derived from cheese. Mm -hmm. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of artisan cheese Mm -hmm. that's getting sold. And so this is an important economic issue. And Mm -hmm. I think... You know, when the artisans um, have large organizations like Wegmans and and Whole Foods Mm -hmm. equally being harmed because they can no longer potentially sell those products. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, do you think this was more of an anti-European cheese development or do you think they purposely were attacking artisan cheese from America? So I
2: think you know that's a question that I had the whole time I was writing this book. Mm-hmm.
1: Is um, yeah, because do you don't come, you don't come totally out and say it. But I, right. I read it what, into the book.
3: Yeah,
2: well, I think initially, you know, there's a, a whole and, there, and for a long time since 2003, mm-hmm. um, there's been concern about um, U.S industrial cheesemakers mm-hmm. being concerned about the protection of cheese names by the EU. So, right, right.
3: Um,
2: so I think initially that issue drove some of this regulation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what I ask in the book, did U.S. artisans just get erroneously caught in this crossfire mm-hmm. or were they two
1: targets? Mm -hmm. And um, I still don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. It still remains a question. Now, it does seem like the FDA is a little bit um, malicious in that it's coincidental that a company that went to a press conference to promote cheese boards was investigated the very next day by the FDA. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and is that called retaliation? Right. And um, that particular cheese maker, you know, the again emails, are, you know, call me paranoid, but mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, the the artisan cheese community, they work with their suppliers and their mm-hmm. retailers, mm-hmm. and so there's lots of support. And you know, when many um, individuals are noticing patterns of behavior. Um, it's more than paranoia. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And you also write about the day after a workshop in Georgia on food safety and hygiene. Um, they, they went to every cheesemaker in attendance, plus two Whole Foods, and took their cheeses. Right, for sampling yeah. and testing. Yeah. And again, here's Whole Foods who helped co-sponsor
2: a workshop on safety, and through their co-sponsorship, they're now being singled out for um, targeted FDA inspection. And the ultimate irony with all of this, again, because I I teach a food safety and public policy class, Mm -hmm. one of the problems that Congress has had with the FDA is their inability to do frequent inspections of Mm -hmm. food facilities. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. the General Accounting Office issued a report saying most um, food facilities in the United States have gone five or more years without an inspection. Right. And so knowing that information, it's like... Then they can pop
1: up at a cheese store to take their cheese. For artisan
2: cheeses, <laughs> and when you look at this from a big risk perspective, right. that activity certainly seems out of scale with what's needed to ensure...
1: Yes. It, exactly, and Exactly. Totally suspicious. Now, I didn't realize how um, unbalanced European cheese versus American cheese was. We apparently eat $1.5 billion of cheese, and... They uh, in in Europe they get 143 million, right? So there's a huge trade imbalance, yeah, in dairy, yeah. and most
2: of it is due to the importation of European cheeses here. Mm-hmm. So our U.S. consumers love these artisan products, and mm-hmm.
1: um, yes, yes. So that's really good for the artisans, and but it's still quite striking for the cheese community. Totally. Mm-hmm. And um,
2: when in my
1: role, when we ran the Vermont
2: Institute for Artisan Cheese, it's like, well, one way to address this imbalance, let's start making great cheese here in the United States that right. consumers would want. <laughs> right. And, and that's right. happening, right? right. Yes, and, it is. Um,
1: yeah. And cheese from Europe is getting more expensive. So, it you know, it's working out actually in our favor. Exactly, exactly. So, so what unless, do we
2: do? Unless it all gets closed down. <laughs>
1: right, right. So what do we do now? What, what You know, the thir- part three of your book is what do we do now? Right.
2: So one of the things, again, going back to um, looking at, at good food safety and public policy, we have got to demand as citizens, as scientists, that our regulators understand food production. Mm -hmm. They understand how foods are produced. Mm -hmm. And there's ample evidence to show that people writing regulations in Washington really have limited knowledge on how foods are being produced. Mm -hmm. If you don't understand how foods are being produced, you can't understand the risks, and you can't understand how to best control those risks.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: so we've got to demand that, you know, and, and the example that I use in the book is, Let's take romaine lettuce, for instance.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: When you don't understand what risks are, what you do is say, okay, everybody should refrain from eating romaine lettuce.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Who does that, that doesn't help anyone. Mm-hmm. It's, and it shows that no one really understands the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, not all romaine lettuce in the United States is contaminated and serves mm-hmm. as a source of infection. We've got to do better than that.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so when it comes to cheese, We've got to demand that the FDA work with our artisan cheese community and not engage in retaliatory behavior, but Mm -hmm. work to understand how do we put in place controls that best protect public health. And Mm -hmm. we know how to do that. It's Mm -hmm. not rocket science.
1: Right, right. Now, you talk about the USDA versus the FDA. Right. And so,
2: you know, my area of expertise is listeria. Mm -hmm. And so the policies that the USDA has written for control of listeria in ready-to-eat meats Mm -hmm. actually incentivize processors to go find sources of listeria in their food processing plants because they know once those sources are identified and eliminated, you make safer products. Mm-hmm. In the FDA, the regulations, if food processors go and test their environment for listeria and find it, food plants aren't sterile, so if you are doing a good job looking at sources of environmental contamination, you're likely to find listeria. hmm but in the FDA model, if you go and find listeria, you have to notify the FDA, and the FDA will probably Close have you, you initiate a recall. Well, okay. initiate a recall right, of right. your products. Mm-hmm. So what the FDA has done is disincentivized food processors from finding sources of listeria. The USDA incentivizes producers And the data from the USDA shows how their approach has reduced the burden of illness from ready-to-eat meat products um, Mm -hmm. from listeria. Mm -hmm. So their policies are working. These are people that understand how ready-to-eat meats are produced. Mm -hmm. And so I argue in the book that we might be better off having all foods regulated by the USDA as opposed to the FDA that, again, has responsibilities for drugs and medical mm-hmm. devices mm-hmm. and th- they've got a full plate um maybe food and, food regulation would be better done by a different agency the USDA now
1: how did it how did cheese get to the FDA you know a lot of
2: um a lot of what we have now with food regulation is it, it, it's historically um So Mm -hmm. different acts that Mm -hmm. have been legislated have put regulatory authority in the hands of either the USDA or the Mm -hmm. FDA. Mm -hmm. And, you know, since those acts were promulgated, the Federal Meat Inspection Act, um, the... That's USDA. That's USDA mm-hmm. um, versus FDA that has regulatory jurisdiction over meat, over milk and dairy products. Mm.
3: Okay. But if
2: you fast forward now to the year 2020, there have been um, numerous attempts in Congress to say, you know, we need a single food safety agency mm-hmm. that has Authority for regulating the safety of all foods, and mm-hmm. and I really feel like that time has come. Mm-hmm. And it's I, it's interesting that the Trump administration is the one that's proposed giving that regulatory authority to USDA for mm. the safety of all
1: foods. Uh oh. <laughs> um, so, it, it, why? who's bigger? Is the USDA bigger than FDA? Or, like, how many people work for each? Where are they? Right. Do you know? so
2: that's... I don't know the answer to that
1: question Mm -hmm.
2: in Mm -hmm. terms of of size and... Yeah, I wonder... I can tell you that as a federal agency, USDA is one of our largest federal agencies. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. And, um... Again, a lot of the size of USDA has to do with honoring treaty obligations to mm-hmm. foreign nations.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
2: But in in terms of the food domain, I don't know how to answer that question yeah. in terms yeah. of personal
1: size. Yeah, I don't know either. I just thought of that question at the end. <laughs> yeah, Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so, well, thank you so much. For discussing this book, for writing this book. Uh, it's just very uh, amazing to read well, all this.
2: Um, well, thanks, Diane, and, and thanks for this wonderful interview. Your questions are just um, wonderful, and, and it's been really, really enjoyable.
1: Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd for Heritage Radio Network.org. And we'll be back uh, in a month.
2: Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you.